On June 11, 1955, a small town in central France called Le Mans. I, I'm just going to say Le Mans. Le Mans. I'm from Texas, dude. It's Le Mans. It's not. You're supposed to say Le Mans. Any, anytime I say Le Mans, just pretend I'm saying Le Mans. Anyways, this small town welcomed its 23rd annual event, one of the most popular motorsports happenings of the time, a 24-hour-long race known as the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The contest was exactly as it sounds. Drivers would complete, compete, compete and complete, it doesn't matter, on a 13.5-kilometer track, which, by the way, is about 8 and a third miles, accumulating as many laps as possible in 24 hours nonstop. More than 50 teams took the track that morning, but the buzz among the more than 200,000 people in attendance was the cars themselves, specifically bustling over the latest Ferrari, Jaguar, and especially the new Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR that touted a revolutionary, ultra-lightweight magnesium alloy body. If you were into race cars and you had the money to do it, this was your Super Bowl. However, three hours into the race, via a few split-second decisions by a handful of drivers, Pierre LeVay and his modernized Mercedes-Benz that I just mentioned rammed into the rear tire of another car, became airborne, and launched toward a dense crowd of attendees just a few feet away. The moments following would serve as the catalyst for sweeping safety protocols throughout the racing world, effects we still see today. The car initially hit a dirt embankment before slamming into a stairwell and completely shattering. The hood... The engine, radiator, and entire front suspension broke loose and hurled directly into a thick crowd at well over 130 miles an hour, cutting through flesh and bone for the length of a football field. More than 70 men, women, and children were instantly killed, many crushed, disemboweled, dismembered, even decapitated. Those trapped near what was left of the car found themselves burning alive from the fuel and magnesium flaming at more than 5,000 degrees. And that fire, by the way, burned for over an hour. Jaguar driver Duncan Hamilton, the 1953 Le Mans champion who had made a pit stop just seconds before the calamity, stated, quote, The scene on the other side of the road was indescribable. The dead and dying were everywhere. The cries of pain, anguish, and despair screamed catastrophe. I stood as if in a dream, too horrified to even think, end quote. So what do you think the other racers did when they saw the carnage? What action or actions did the race officials take as blood spilled quite literally on and near the asphalt on which the cars raced so long ago in Le Mans? Simple. They made the decision to continue the race. Hello, friends, and welcome to How to Be 40, my podcast that attempts to delineate what it means to transition from juvenile thinking and behavior to genuine maturity. My junior year at Angelo State University, our track team had a small in-house meet. I guess our coach wanted us to experience the thrill of competition prior to jumping in with both feet 
And although I was a hurdler, there weren't that many hurdlers at that small school. So coach told me to run the 800-meter dash against another half dozen or so athletes. At the time, our best 800-meter runner was Quentin, or Q as we called him. A black guy, Q was incredibly talented both intellectually and athletically. He was nice too. As far as looks go, he had the body of an action figure, like one of those Marvel dudes. And he, in the face, he literally looked almost identical to Andre 3000 of Outcast. If you don't know who Andre 3000 of Outcast is, you, uh, I don't know what to tell you. You, you, need, you need to get out more. Anyways, during the race at the 600-meter mark or thereabouts, with only about 200 meters to go, Q was in front of our small huddle of athletes, and I was right behind him, cramped closely by the other runners in the group. I was actually very close. I was actually too close. And my foot clipped Q's, sending him tumbling to the ground, thus opening the door for me to take the lead in that event. At the time, I was immediately faced with a decision. Do I stop running and hurry over to offer Q help or assistance, the man who was on the ground because of me, or do I keep running? The decision I made at that moment was simple. I made the decision to continue the race. I realize it's Hardly fair to compare the deaths of almost 100 innocent motorsports bystanders with that of a small, relatively insignificant in-house track meet. But it's the ultimate decision that links these two events. I pose these questions to you, the listener, all three of you. What obligation does one have to him or herself when it comes to striving toward a goal? When does a commitment to oneself, so you've made a goal to yourself, what is a commitment to yourself get overridden by an obligation to another? Is harm, and I'm using harm in quotation marks, is harm the delineation? In other words, if I realize you're in need of help, do I offer that help as long as I'm not put in danger by helping? What if I've been working towards a goal and veering off of that goal to help you wouldn't even change your situation all that much? Can I ethically keep going? Check it out. In the 1940s, many German citizens refused to help Jews in hiding for fear that they, the Germans themselves, would be killed. Is that okay? If I would have stopped to help Q, that wouldn't have changed the situation, right? If the drivers would have stopped racing, that would not have helped the dead and dying people in the sideline. There's a whole lot of gray area here and a smorgasbord of scenarios, but I believe these questions are worth a bit of contemplation. If you listen to episode four of this season, you'll recall that According to the man named Jesus, we're obligated to help those in need. We talked about the road to Jericho. Even if that means putting yourselves in danger. So that addresses the German example above. But let's look at the Q incident. Would me stopping have helped Q? Check it out. In a race where milliseconds often differentiate winners from losers, even if I could have helped Q back on his feet and back onto the track, neither of us would have had a chance to win. The race car drivers in France... We're competing in a globally recognized circuit race. They had trained tirelessly. Untold amounts of money were on the line. Plus, like I mentioned before, it's not like stopping the race could have helped the dead and dying, right? Medical personnel would have had no more or less effectiveness by postponing or even canceling the event. So what's the right answer? What is the right course of action? Interesting questions, which brings me to a story. When my daughter was around 10 years old, she's 13 now, I walked into her room holding a Bible. And had my serious face on. Usually I'm going there. I'm like, you know, just playing with her. Like I go in a room, fart and walk out or something. But when I walk in there at this particular moment, she's sitting up in her bed, working on some sort of art project like she often does, making a mess, no doubt. I quietly sit next to her and I told her to listen carefully. 
She paused her artistry. I held the Bible flat on my left hand and placed my right hand on the top, sandwiching the Bible between my palms. And I said, McKinley, the answer to every question worth asking in life is in this book. And I want you to know and remember that. She nodded. That said, I fully believe the correct answer to the four questions about obligation can be found in the good book. And I believe I've covered much of that in previous podcasts. However, today we're going to branch out. We're going to go to what I'm going to call a supplementary source. There's a publication called the Marine Corps Warfighting Publication, or MCWP 6-10. It's authored, literally, by the U.S. Marine Corps itself. It describes a leadership philosophy that speaks to who and what Marines are. Chapter 3, specifically, outlines the three core values of the ideal U.S. Marine. Honor, courage, commitment. I want to zoom in on the honor component. Let me read to you a paragraph from this book. Quote, the bedrock of our character, the quality that guides Marines to exemplify the ultimate in ethical and moral behavior, never to lie, cheat, or steal, to abide by an uncompromising concept of integrity, to respect human dignity, to have concern for each other. The quality of maturity, dedication, trust, and dependability that commits Marines to act responsibly, to be accountable for actions, to fulfill obligations, and to hold others accountable for their actions, end quote. Dude, is that not freaking gold? Let me highlight a few points in that paragraph. To abide by an uncompromising concept of integrity, to respect human dignity, to have concern for each other, to fulfill obligations, those are directly out of the Marine Corps Warfighting Publication. Integrity, by definition, is the quality of having strong moral principles, moral uprightness, if you will. Dignity is the right of a person to be valued and respected for their own sake. And here, what's the obligation? Well, it's the responsibility to have integrity and respect the dignity of others. If I do say so, it seems the teachings of Jesus Christ might align with the doctrines of the U.S. Marine Corps to a greater degree than some realize. Interesting thought there. Let me, let, me, let me summarize all this. Those in control of the Le Mans race of 1955 should have immediately canceled or at least postponed the event. They did not because it would have caused multiple inconveniences and financial losses. My junior year of college, I made the decision to continue racing in an insignificant affair after my friend had fallen as a result of my actions. And by the way, I later learned that Q at that moment suffered a career-ending injury for an aspiring senior. He had a pulled hamstring, and he would never compete at the collegiate level again. And I have regretted not immediately jumping off the track to help Q for the past two decades. But the truth of the matter is, we all do this often, very often. How many times have we come across someone who reveals their depression to us, and we ignore it or make light of the situation? How many times have we had an opportunity to cheer someone up, to help them with a task, to offer counsel, words of advice, a kind word, or even a smile? But we are too focused on our race, and we overlook their situation. How often have we deemed someone unfit of our time and respect? We all do this, and we do it a lot. After all, not only are we training for the race of life, we're currently in the race, right? Like every moment of every day, we're training and we're in the actual race. What time, effort, and attention can we offer, can we afford to give the ones bleeding on the side of the track? 
you can dig into the teachings of Jesus or search into the philosophy of the U.S. Marine Corps, and you'll still get the same instruction. I want you to ask yourself these questions. What moment have you disregarded a person in need so that you can continue looking forward? What relative, friend, coworker, or even stranger is hurting that you, despite being able to help, have overlooked for the sake of getting to your imaginary finish line? So my challenge to you is as simple as the decisions outlined in this podcast, and that is to diligently consider what races you're continuing to run, even though someone in need of help is on your sideline. And I want you to postpone your race. I want you to choose the path of integrity and dignity. I'm Noah Dean. Thanks for listening. Thank you.